Vincent Valder, now Vincent Valder, that's not their real names, but Vincent Valder are dear friends of Anita and myself. Uh, they are an amazing Christian couple. They are devoted to Jesus and his church. They love one another. And although they have a child now, for many years they were unable to conceive. They are infertile. Uh, Vince told me this. One night, after many fruitless months of various medical interventions to try and help them conceive a child, Valda was once again in tears. In tears, she asked Vince, why is God doing this to me? When we suffer, that's the kind of question we ask. Is God punishing me? Does God love me? Many Christians don't expect to suffer. We know that God is powerful. We know that God is good. And so we think we should be immune to suffering. That God will give us the best life now. Uh, this is what the best-selling uh, Christian author, uh, Joel Osteen, has to say on what Christians should expect from God. God wants us to be constantly increasing, to be rising to new heights. He wants to increase you with his wisdom and help you to make better decisions. God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas and creativity. Doesn't that sound right? Our God is the God who created heaven and earth. The bulls on a thousand hills belong to him. God is a good God. He loves us. So we should expect to see God's blessings all through our life. Increase after increase. Things just getting better. And with a teaching like that, you can see why Joel Olstein has lots of people who want to hear what he has to say. Uh, that quote that I read before, it's from the first page of his, of his best-selling book, Your Best Life Now. But the problem is, what if this isn't happening? Where is God when I'm not rolling in financial increase, when I get the sack, when my health is failing? Does suffering mean that God doesn't love me? Do trials mean that God is against me and when I need his compassion, all he's got for me is a big stick? Joel Osteen says that your best life is now. But is that what the Bible's got to say? Some of the Christians that James uh, was writing to were doing it tough. From the passage we read last week, it seems that these Christians were being oppressed by rich people. Uh, in James 5, 1-6, uh, he writes about God's judgment upon the rich who have hoarded their wealth, ripped off their workers, they've lived in luxury whilst others have suffered. In his condemnation of these rich oppressors, uh, James has already given some hope uh, to the Christians in the midst of their suffering. In verse 4, 
he tells them that God has heard their cries for help. And in verse 5, he has pronounced that God's judgment is coming upon the rich. Now, that might be all well and good, uh, to know that God is going to punish these evil people. But these evil people have oppressed me. How could God let this happen to me? Is God still good? Does he still love me? Well, in the passage we're looking at today, James answers those questions. So in the context of facing oppression, James commands Christians to be patient until the the return of Jesus. Have a look in your Bibles in uh, verse 7 of chapter 5. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. And the kind of patience that James tells the Christian to have, it's explained by that illustration of the farmer. A farmer who plants a crop and waits. He waits for the rain to come, trusting that God will provide the rain at the right time for the crop to grow. And he's going to wait for the seeds to sprout and for the plants to grow and for that valuable crop to be ready for harvest. Do you see the kind of patience that James is after? It's a patience that trusts God to provide the rain and it's a patience that eagerly looks forward to the blessing of that valuable crop. Uh, Look back in verse 7, see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. Uh, And so having given this illustration of the patient farmer, James restates his command. In the midst of suffering, be patient. Don't give up on trusting in Jesus because Jesus is coming back soon. Uh, Let's read what James has to say in verse 8. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Do you hear that? Because it's very different from what Joel Osteen has to say. Your best life isn't now. James says that your best life is near. In the midst of suffering, keep holding on to Jesus because your hope is in the future. Our hope is near when Jesus comes again. Uh, In verse 9, James turns to that negative side of patience impatience. James tells Christians who have been oppressed and suffering, in your midst of your suffering, don't turn against each other. And just like that command to patience and standing firm is given with that hope of Jesus returning, this command not to grumble also has the return of Jesus as its motivation. But this time, it's a warning. Have a look at verse 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Uh, In this verse, James gets down to the real nitty-gritty of persevering under trials. Now, naively, I've got this kind of idea that when you're faced with the kind of suffering that those believers faced, that it would drive you together. I've got this idea that persecuted Christians are actually made more unified by their persecution. But James is much more realistic than that. Sadly, uh, the pressures of trials and oppression 
actually tears churches apart rather than driving them together. And that's why James needs to make this command against grumbling with that ominous sounding of the judge, the Lord Jesus, standing, waiting at the door. In verses 7 and 9, James has been a bit theoretical. Be patient, because Jesus is returning soon. And this returning is both a comfort and a warning. A comfort to those who are enduring patiently, and a warning to those who are grumbling. Uh, But now he gives an example, or two examples of patience from the Old Testament. And by giving these examples of people who really did endure... James is putting a face and, and giving a story to that kind of patience. Or we, can, we can read these stories of patience and see what, what it's really like. And so the first example James gives is that of the prophets, the prophets who spoke for God. Verse 10, brothers, as an example of the patience, sorry, of, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Uh, Now, the Old Testament is full of the stories of the prophets. Uh, Generally, they're stories of of the prophets suffering at the hands of people because they spoke for God. Uh, Take as an example Elijah, whose story we find in the book of uh, 1 and 2 Kings. He lived in Israel uh, when the wicked king Ahab and his queen Jezebel were ruling in Samaria, uh, the northern kingdom. And his experience of suffering, it can be summed up in just one verse from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 14. I think that's on your outline. Uh, Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. Uh, This is what Elijah said after being hunted down by Queen Jezebel because he dared to put the worship of false gods to shame. And yet despite the threat of death, Elijah kept enduring, speaking the word of God to that godless king and queen until God took him away from this earth. But it's not just Elijah. Uh, Jeremiah was thrown down a well because he said that God's judgment was coming. Isaiah was sawn in two. Zechariah was murdered in front of the altar in God's temple. And these prophets and the others we consider blessed. They're blessed because they endured and were patient through their suffering. They're blessed by God. This is so different from how we normally think. If you were to get thrown down a well or cut in two, it's hardly what we would think of as being blessed. We think that being blessed means our best life is now. But the Bible says that we are blessed because our best life is near. In fact, James has already said this once before uh, in in chapter 1, verse 12 of his letter. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
And now he says it again. Uh, look at verse 11. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. James's second example of perseverance is Job. Uh, probably the Old Testament example of the suffering of a righteous person. Uh, the story of Job is, is on one level a pretty straightforward story. Uh, he is a godly man and he's got a pretty good life. He's got a great family. He's wealthy and he's got good health. And then in a moment, it's all taken away from him. In a moment, all his livestock, dead. All his children, dead. And the book of Job is basically... Uh, him asking why over and over again before God finally answers him and then restores his wealth to him and gives him a new family. And what was it that kept Job going through this trial? He knew that God was good and was to be trusted. And so he held on to that truth and he endured until God restored him. And God was exceedingly generous to him. Uh, and in Job 42.10, it says that the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. Job persevered through suffering, trusting God, and God showed his mercy and compassion to him. And so Job is James's second example of perseverance. It's there in verse 11 as well. You have heard of Job's perseverance and seen what the Lord finally brought about. And finally, James uh, wraps up this section of, of his letter on perseverance by affirming God's compassion and mercy. That's the essential knowledge when facing trials. It's not enough to know that God is powerful. What's important is that God cares. For Job, he experienced the heart-wrenching distress with the loss of absolutely everything that was dear to him. Yet, when God finally brought about the restoration of Job's fortune, he knew the compassion and the mercy of God. He experienced it. And yet, for some of the prophets, they didn't experience the restoration of God in this life. And yet, we consider them blessed because they knew the compassion and mercy of God. Uh, so see how James concludes, it's, it's the end of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. It seems upside down. Uh, the Joel Osteen quote from the start just sounds so right. God loves us. So surely that means that this life will be just full of increase and success. Surely God wants us to live the abundant life. But James here has said the exact opposite. He finishes with the same truth about God. God does love us. He is full of compassion and mercy. But James says that God is full of compassion and mercy not at the end of saying how good life is, but at the end of talking about suffering and patience. 
Joel Osteen says, you can tell if you are blessed by God by all the wealth and happiness and health in your life. But James says that the prophets were patient in the face of suffering and they are blessed by God. The Bible has a radically different picture of blessing and it talks about blessing on a different time scale from Joel Osteen. And it's understanding this that's the key to, to heeding James's warning and obeying his commands. If we get our expectations right on what it means to be blessed by God, it'll stop our grumbling and enable us to be patient. Why do we grumble against each other when things get tough? Is it because we think that it's not fair? We think if God loved us like he said that he does, then surely we wouldn't be going through this. Or we think that I deserve better than this. It's not fair. And so we grumble. We grumble against God and we grumble against each other. We behave like Israel did in the wilderness. Here they are. God has rescued them from a place of terrible suffering. They were slaves to an evil master and God rescued them. God brought them out of Egypt into the wilderness where he was going to give them his law and take them into his, his promised land. But the moment they found themselves in the wilderness, the grumbling began. Where's our food? Where's our water? It's just here, actually. (laughs) Are we there yet? They grumbled against their leaders, against each other and against God. And why did they grumble? Because they were impatient. They were wanting to receive the good things that God had promised them. They wanted to get straight to that promised land, to be there in that land of milk and honey. But they didn't want to go through the desert. They didn't want to hear God's law before they got there. We grumble for the same reason. Our expectations are all wrong. We think we're in that promised land already, but it's more like we're in the wilderness. We think that now that we've trusted in Jesus and our sins are forgiven and we're in this right relationship with God, well, everything should be sweet. But that's not the right expectation. It never has been. The prophets who spoke in God's name suffered for it. Job, who trusted God, suffered. God's Messiah, our Lord Jesus, suffered and he told his followers to expect the same fate. We grumble because we think, we grumble because we have the wrong expectations. We think we deserve better than Job, better than the prophets, better than our Lord Jesus. We want our best life now but our best life is near. So instead of grumbling, we need to be patient and stand firm until the return of Jesus. What is it that enables us to be patient 
when the suffering is unbearable. It's knowing that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And how do we know that? How do Vince and Valda know that God loves them when they struggle to conceive a child? It's because of what God has promised. Jesus has promised that he is going to come back again. He will return as judge to punish the wicked enemies of God. Uh, That's what uh, James spoke about in the first six verses of this chapter. Jesus will return and punish those rich people who have oppressed the believers. And Jesus will return as saviour to welcome into glory those who have patiently stood firm through the good times and the bad and are waiting for his return. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks about this in some great words in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. I'll just read them out. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. How do we know that God loves us even in the midst of suffering? We know that God loves us because of what he has promised, the return of Jesus and the eternal glory which the coming of Jesus means. For all people, and Christians are not excluded, we will know suffering. Maybe suffering like Job, maybe suffering like the prophets, being persecuted for speaking God's word to an unbelieving world. But we will suffer. And it's the promise of God that Jesus will return. It's the promise of God that Jesus will return and judge the wicked. It's the promise of God that Jesus will return and remake creation. It's the promise of God that creation will be renewed and sin and suffering obliterated. That promise is how we know that God is full of compassion and mercy. Jesus is coming back soon. Our best life is near. Uh, Fanny Crosby is a lady who knew this. Uh, Fanny is a lady who knew what it meant to face extreme suffering and have her hope fixed in heaven in the return of Jesus. Uh, You probably haven't heard Fanny's name, uh, but you'll know her songs. Uh, Fanny uh, was an American hymn writer. She was born in 1820. Uh, During her her life, she wrote about 8,000 hymns. That's crazy! Uh, She died when she was 94. So she wrote hymns from the day she was born until the day she died. That would mean one and a half hymns per week. An amazing creative output. Uh, Some of her her most well-known hymns include Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine, 
and to God be the glory. Uh, Fanny was obviously a talented and gifted woman. But Fanny suffered. Uh, Fanny was blind from when she was just a very little girl. Uh, She wasn't born blind. She was born a healthy girl. But when she was just six weeks old, she caught a cold. And her eyes became inflamed. So her parents took her to the doctor. (coughs) Uh, But their normal doctor wasn't available. So they saw another doctor who treated Fanny uh, by putting mustard plasters on her eyes. Now, that might seem like an okay thing. I mean, we're talking about 1820. But, but that stuff, mustard plasters, you know, the stuff you put on your sandwich, well, it burns your skin if it's left on for too long. So just imagine what it would have done to the sensitive cells of a baby girl's eyes. Her eyes were destroyed by this treatment by someone who turned out to be a fake doctor. Imagine that. Blinded through a horrible treatment by a fraud of a doctor. You'd be excused for being livid, angry at the doctor, angry at your parents, angry with God. But that's not how Fanny understood things. And this one event sums it all up. Uh, She was talking with a Christian minister and he said to her, I think it's a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. But she replied, you know, if, if when I was born, I could have made just one petition, it would have been that I was born blind. This confused the minister. And so he asked, why? And listen to Fanny's response. It's pure gold. This is what Fanny said. Because when I get to heaven, the first face that that will ever gladden my sight will be that of my Saviour. When I get to heaven, the first thing my eyes will ever be looking at, it's going to be pure joy to see the face of Jesus. Fanny had her sight set on the right goal. She knew that God loves her because of the promise of Jesus' return. She knew that her best life wasn't now. Her best life was near. She knew what it meant to be patient without grumbling until the coming of Jesus. Do you? If you do, then you can sing out the uh, the next song we're going to sing. It's it's one of Fanny's hymns, To God Be the Glory. And the final verse, as we sing it, think about this. The final verse, it really centres on that great hope and joy we have in the return of Jesus. I'm going to read it out. Great things he has taught us. Great things he has done, and great our rejoicing through Jesus the Son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Uh, The musos are going to come up. Please join together and sing this song.